1: Ah, It's Herd Tell Show. It is January the 28th. It's Friday, folks. You made it to the end of the week. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us here on Herd Tell. A whole lot of show to cover. A lot going on to finish off uh, this almost the end of January. We hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street or around the world. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, we're going to end the show on our happy good note. Uh, food, feeding people, feeding souls, a food truck that is going above and beyond. We love food. We're going to touch in on that uh there's economic news uh the way the economy is covered we're going to turn down the noise on a screaming headline and put a little context to that also an interesting story about gas no not what comes out of the mouth of the talking heads on tv and politicians we're talking about actual gas natural gas like you cook with like you use your water heater and heat your home with uh there's a stanford study out trying to get people off natural gas and onto electricity, but the way they do it and the way they approach it, uh, we have some questions. We're going to dig into that, dig into what we talked about on the show previously about not all studies are made equal, but first um, a tough topic, but a timely topic. Uh, we always say this is a partnership between you and us, because if you don't listen, we got no one to talk to. Um, longtime supporter twitter buddy of ours holden he's at holden 114 on the twitter good dude good follow you need to follow him uh he posed the question and tagged us directly and it's from his tweet i'll read it Uh, this is a topic i'd like to see a sober discussion on is there a blanket ban on unvaccinated transplants does it not make sense that being unvaccinated count against you when deciding to who gets priority and the quote the thing he is quote tweeting here is an nbc news article that a boston hospital is defending itself after a man's family claims he was denied a new heart for refusing to be vaccinated against COVID-19. From that piece, um, a little bit down into it, because we want to condense this just a shade so we can dig into the important part. Now, I'm going to preface this. Uh, this man's family, I completely understand. They want to do everything they want can for their loved one. Uh, they also have a GoFundMe uh, type of situation where they're trying to do some fundraising they have their side of the story of how this goes within it we're not going to talk about the individual patient his situation uh the uh, i don't think it's fair to dig into his particular situation the man is dying if he does not get this transplant we'll leave it at that if you want to dig in and make your own judgments about this man and his family that's on you we're not going there because we're going to stay with the bigger picture conversation. Um, The piece has a lot of family stuff in it, how much they love him, what kind of a person he is, this sort of thing. But here's the nut of it. Uh, Hospitals said research has shown that transplant recipients are at a higher risk of non-transplant patients of dying from COVID-19 and that its policies are in line with the recommendations of the American Society of Transplantation, that's who maintains the list, and other health organizations. Patients also must meet Other Health and Lifestyle Criteria to Receive Donated Organs, and it is unknown if D.J. Ferguson, that's the individual in question here that came from the tweet that Holden sent us, so transplant centers only place patients on the waiting list whom they deem the most likely to survive with a new organ, quote, giving the shortage of available organs. We do everything we can to ensure that a patient who receives a transplanted organ has the greatest chance of survival, the hospital says. Brigham also stressed that no patient is placed on an organ wait list without meeting those criteria and rejected the notion that a transplant candidate could be considered first on the list for an organ, a claim the Ferguson family made in its fundraising post. Again, you can do your own homework on that. We're not going to get into it. Um, We're going to be sensitive to the situation. Just take everybody's word for it at face value. Quote, there are currently more than 100,000 candidates on the wait list for organ transplantation and a shortage of available organs. Around half the people on the waiting list will not receive an organ within the first five years. Hospitals in other states have faced similar criticism for denying transplants to patients who weren't vaccinated against COVID-19. In Colorado last year, a woman suffering from late-stage kidney disease said she was denied a transplant by her hospital because she was unvaccinated. Leila Lutali, a born-again Christian, said she opposed immunization because of the role that fetal cell lines play in some vaccine developments. Again, that's another heavier topic for another day. We're just going off the post as it was sent to us. The United Network for Organ Sharing, the nonprofit that manages the country's organ transplant system, does not track how many patients refuse to get COVID-19 vaccine, have been denied transplants, said pask then organizational spokesperson. She said patients who are denied organ transplants still have the right to go elsewhere, including individual hospitals, ultimately deciding which patients to add to the national wait list. There's more background in this piece. I encourage you to read it. It's at NBCnews.com. It's titled Hospital Patients Without COVID Vaccination Denied a Heart Transplant. Um, But to pose the question, uh, this is not a COVID-19 specific thing. This is a transplant wait list thing. You have to be All the way up on all your current vaccinations. You have to be in a certain state of health to be a viable transplant. Um, Let's go over to the Mayo Clinic's website uh, for just a second. Some little background information on organ donation. Over 100,000 people in the U.S. are waiting for an organ transplant. This is the Mayo Clinic. That's the same number that was in the NBC News article. Unfortunately, Many may never get called to say that a sustainable organ and a second chance at life has been found. It is estimated that every day in the U.S., 20 patients die because they cannot get an organ. It can be hard to think about what's going to happen to your body after you die, let alone donating your organs and tissues. But being an organ donor is a generous and worthwhile decision that can be a lifesaver, but there just aren't enough of them. Not only are they not enough of them, the ones that are have to be perfectly matched from the donor to the patient. The protocols for the organ donation list are extremely, extremely strict, and they're not just medical matches. There's also psychiatric evaluations. There's also how they take care of themselves. Can they take care of themselves? Do they have a care plan to make the organ as viable as possible? The truth with something like organ donation is you can do everything medically right, and it still may not work. So there are some of those strictest protocols in all of medicine guiding before, during, and after an organ transplant. Here, there's going to be some hard truths here that we're just going to have to cut through the moment. I know everybody has their ideas about the COVID-19 vaccine. People have things like mandates on their minds. We're talking about organ donation. That's stat. And the reason the protocols are so strict is because every single one of those people on that list has a story. It's a sad story. It's a heart-rendering story. Every one of those people have people that love them and don't want them to die. And I don't want them to die either, and neither do you. The problem with the list and the reason the protocols are so strict is because every single one of those stories jerk at your heart. There's not enough organs for enough people. So the protocol has to be the bad guy. The protocol has to be the one that says you will do X, Y, and Z if you want to get on the list and to get an organ. And it is extremely strict. Questioning your doctors, not complying with your doctors, not being able to take care and medical advice in a prompt manner is just not going to be tolerated on these lists. That includes the new COVID vaccines in the middle of a pandemic. You can have your opinions on it. That's just the rules. If you cannot follow instructions, they're not going to give you an organ Because then what happens if you get the organ, don't follow instructions, and it doesn't take to your body? Here's the super hard truth of this, and it's an ugly truth. But this is what they're dealing with, and this is why those protocols are so strict. You're not just giving one person an organ and saving their life. You're denying probably quite a few other people 20 a day that will die without that organ. There has to be a system in place for who the best candidates are. And it's hard to make those decisions, life and death decisions. So if you cannot follow something simple like a vaccination guideline and question that, they don't have time to fool with you. They're going to move on to somebody else because there's 20 other people a day that aren't going to be here the next day if they don't get an organ. And most of them will not. I know that's hard. I know that's grown folk talk. I know it's not fair. That's how it is. So is it fair to have a blanket vaccine ban for people that they won't get their organ if they didn't get the COVID-19 vaccine, even if they have legitimate questions? I'll be honest. I don't know if it's fair, but those are the rules. And those are the rules in a business and in a medical environment where they have to make split-second decisions to try to save lives because those organs, once they take them out, they're only viable for so long. You have to match them. You have to get them where they're going, and you got to get them in the body. They don't have time for the debates that we have online. We should probably have a little bit of humility and leave this one to the experts. And I know we bang on experts, but in this case, they know a lot more than we do. Every single one of those stories is a sad story that renders at your heart. But if you want that organ, you're going to have to follow the rules. It's part of the hardness of life. That's just how it is. We'll do more tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. You know, when we have our friend Michael Siegel on, who's a, a doctor and he's a scientist, and we have to believe all scientists. So believe whatever he tells you. Dems the rules now. Um, but when we have him on uh, last time, and you can go back and get this on the Herd Tell Good Talks or the full blown Herd Tell episodes, however you're getting this program, go look for it and re listen to it. I directly asked him about these studies uh, because just because something comes out as an academic study, That sounds important, like, ooh, big-name university has a study, so it must be true. But there's a lot that goes into those studies from the academic side. You have a study, and then you'll usually have a counterproposal study, and not all studies are equal. Like everything else, some of them have agendas. Some of them are in good faith. Some of them are not. So when we saw this headline, it caught our attention. Uh, This is from The Washington Post. The headline, gas stoves in kitchen pose a risk to public health, and the planet research says... And then the byline here comes the kicker. Stanford University study. Ooh, Stanford, that's important sounding. Comes as cities across the country seek to ban national, natural gas in new buildings, prompting industrial pushback. Well, okay. So we read through this piece a little bit. Uh, reading from the Washington Post. Sci- the appliances release far more of the potent planet warming gas methane than the Environmental Protection Agency estimates. Stanford University scientists found. In a study published Thursday in the Journal of Environmental Science and Technology, the appliance also emits significant amounts of nitrous dioxide, a pollutant that can trigger asthma and other respiratory conditions. Boy, this sounds bad. Scientists and climate activists have increasingly urged homeowners to switch to all-electric stoves, water boilers, and other appliances, even as the national gas industry fights in New York and across the country to keep the signature blue flame of gas-burning stoves as a staple In American homes. If you have a financial ability to swap, mark that phrase, financial ability. Gonna come back to that, back to the piece. Financial ability to swap out a gas stovetop for an electric induction cooktop. I do think it's a good idea, said Rob Jackson, a Stanford Earth Science professor and co author of the study. It's a good idea for the planet and for air quality. Nationally, more than one third of households, 40 million homes, cook with natural gas. In California, 60% of the households favor. The popular fuel. The researchers in Thursday's study measured emissions from stove in 53 homes across seven California counties. They said the findings to estimate the methane emissions from gas stoves in the United States have a comparable climate impact to about 500,000 gas-powered cars driven for a year, Jackson said. And then there's some other things in here that go into details about the methane. There's also some pushback from some of the representatives from the gas industry, but I want to jump down to the bottom. Of this article because we have learned what we've talked about. We talked about audience capture, we talk about SEO, search engine optimization, all the stuff they want you to read and they want you to click on is up at the front. All the data you need is usually down at the bottom. And well, what do you know? Looky here. Um, if you go down to the bottom of this pace, piece, the way they measured these emissions in these kitchens is they plasted it, they took plastic and plasticed off the kitchens and basically made them airtight centers and then they measured emissions. The reason I find this a little suspect is because before you cook in your home, you do not plastic off the kitchen. You have ventilation. If your house is up to code, you have some pretty strict ventilation standards for your appliances in your kitchen. And that's before you add in things you can do like opening a window or turning on a fan or having a vent fan or other things. That's not a normal environment. So that makes me a little suspicious of the study. So we were talking about this on Twitter with our friend Michael Siegel, who's a scientist, and he said he didn't really have a problem with the study, but he pointed out something else. Remember that line up there about 500,000 cars? If we would stop doing this, that would be equal to 500,000 cars. And he said on Twitter, he said, that sounds all well and good, except that we have 287 million cars on the road. That's basically a drop in the bucket. Maybe this isn't one of the pressing priorities for home safety and or the environment. If you're worried about climate change things, there's probably bigger fish to fry than this. So that's an interesting point to bring up, too. But then Mr. Jackson, down at the bottom, get this quote. Remember, we're talking about people that can financially switch from electric to gas. And remember, in most parts of the country, gas is far cheaper than electricity. And if you switch everybody to electricity, the electricity is going to go up because we do not have an ability to create enough electricity for more electricity right now. I'm all for alternate energy, but the tech just ain't there to replace all other forms yet. But down at the bottom, I want you to listen to this. From the Washington Post, same piece. The study's authors said they, they stand by their findings. This is after the pushback about the plastic kitchens, which went through a rigorous peer review process. Oh, well, then. Jackson added that he hopes the conclusions persuade some Americans to ditch gas stoves for induction cooktops which can boil a pot of water nearly half the time of a conventional burner despite often costing more up front. Quote, this is the quote from Jackson that same guy from the beginning. Some people have an affinity for gas stoves he said but if we could just get them to try electric cooktops they would never go back. I'm sorry but I know that human nature is undefeated. So even if you're trying to be unbiased and you're trying to be fair and you're trying to do peer reviews and all these other good things, you cannot tell me that these individuals whose stated goal is to get people to switch to electric cooktops from gas cooktops gave this thing a fair shake so that he can make a statement like that. The way they did the study, I find suspect the way they did their conclusion. I find suspect his comments. I find suspect now Here's the fun thing about data. You can still have a completely scientifically sound test, but because of your biases, you can inherently put in the result you want, even having an ethical test just because of that. These are things we need to read past the headlines on because there's something else involved here. That price, that sounds really good to Stanford University researchers, I'm sure, who live in a very expensive, one of the most expensive parts of the country. I'm sure it sounds really good that we could just get everybody to switch. But when you do regulations on things like natural gas and cooktops and in-home, the poorest, the most economically disadvantaged folks who are already scraping by, those are costs that they cannot afford. And it's easy to put it on a study, and it's easy to juice the numbers, but it's everyday working Americans who may have to pay for some bad policy if it wasn't done based on a good faith study. So, Mr. Jackson, I would encourage you, I'm all for you advocating what you want to, but do it in plain speech and understand that just saying if you can afford it isn't just a throwaway line on an academic study. For most people, if they can afford it's one of the overriding things in their entire life. More Hertel right after this. (music) Welcome back to Herd Tell. Here's one of those headlines that just drive me nuts when we talk about turning down the noise of the news cycle. Uh, CNN Business, the economy boomed in Biden's first year. His second will be harder. And the data they are using is that there was a massive upswing in growth. Um, it was a substantial uptick, quoting from CNN here. The final three months of 2021 got much better scorecard than the economists had predicted. You ever knows how they are always surprised? not good we're gonna have to ask jericho hill about that next time he's on uh gdp grew at a seasonally adjusted annualized rate of 6.9 in the fourth quarter uh it was a substantial uptick from the delta ridden third quarter when gdp grew at an annualized pace of only 2.3 in fact it was the best quarterly performance since the third quarter of 2022 2020 excuse me when the initial reopening boom buoyed economic growth President Joe Biden praised the country's growth, the GDP numbers in my first year show. We are finally building an American economy for the 21st century with the fastest second. wordy, 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 economic, wordy, 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 wordy. And for the first time in 20 years, our economy grew faster than China's. Come on now. Uh, Let's be adults here. We're having good economic numbers year over year upswings because the economy has been struggling and has had the covid pandemic's foot on its neck. So I agree these are good numbers. It's good that the economy is improving. But this is like saying when you get up in the morning out of bed, you're the tallest you've been since yesterday because you laid down all night. You have to keep it in context. No, the economy is not as bad as the worst naysayers have, but it's not as rosy as people say it is. And this growth is because of how bad the economy had to adjust during the COVID-19 pandemic. So when something like Delta happens and you have a couple really bad weeks, that's bad enough to blow the thing for a whole quarter. It screws the numbers up. And then the next quarter, just by default, it's going to look a whole lot better. So keep all this economic news in mind. Keep it all in perspective. Understand that there's also politics and PR and spin involved. Try to take in good information from economic folks like we've had on with folks like uh, our friend Jericho Hill, who we'll have back. Um, we've had our friend Dr. Blanco on. Just listen to good folks. Don't panic. With all these news stories, maintain your bearing. Don't be too overly scared of inflation until it's time for panic. And don't be too rosy about how great the economy is, because even though it's good for some folks, it's not good for others. Keep your bearing, keep your perspective, and we'll keep talking about this in a calm and measured and an adult way right here on Herd Tell. More Herd Tell right after this. It's our Tell Show. We're back. Uh, Another Young Voices contributor. We do love having them and partnering with them. Uh, Travis Nix. He's a Villanova undergrad. He's now at Georgetown Law. Uh, He's been writing all over the place, National Review, uh, Washington Examiner, Chicago Tribune. That's a nice little uh, plum in your cap, my friend. How are you today?
0: Good. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So we want to talk a little tax policy, but I was prepping for this and it just kind of struck me as We don't talk about tax policy very much lately. We had the the Trump tax cuts, of course, got talked about, but that was on the corporate side more so. Uh, And other than uh, some really wonky into politics, people like me complaining about the salt debate last year, we just don't talk about taxes much anymore. And that used to be one of the dominant political issues uh, in our day. What happened?
0: You know, I think there's been for me, you know, I love taxes. So, I mean, this is what I do is I study taxes and there's a lot of tax stuff actually going on. You know, the Build Back Better bill had a lot of tax stuff in there that was going to raise taxes on corporations and just, you know, kill the economy, essentially. But I think a lot of these culture war issues and social issues have kind of taken over, um, people caring about the economy. But I think it's now starting to come back as people are seeing, you know, inflation go up. They're paying more for everything. Uh, They lost their jobs possibly during the coronavirus. So I think people are now starting to want to really kickstart the economy back. And if you want to uh, kickstart the economy, you have to look at the tax code and how to improve it.
1: Why do you think we don't equate? Because there's what well, you know some ac- academics call hidden taxes uh regulatory taxes uh you can even argue inflation that we're dealing with right now that's a tax on everybody especially the poorer Americans why do they not equate things like that with the tax code like you just said anytime you have legislation especially something like build back better it's going to affect the tax code you know just by default almost even if they don't intend to why that disconnect in the public consciousness with how taxes really work if it's not called specifically a tax.
0: Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at taxes. You actually have your tax code. I think that's the main way people look at it and try to measure it, looking at rates and then what are we going to tax? What aren't we going to tax? That's the tax base. But then you also have that regulatory side. Um, a lot of burdensome regulations out there that really hamper people, people's ability to innovate and improve the economy. But that's a lot more difficult to measure. You know, economists have gotten really good at basically uh, saying how much a tax cut or increase is going to help or hurt the economy, but for regulatory and all the regulations we have, it's really hard to measure. So I think that's the disconnect there is taxes are kind of easy to measure versus regulation. The burden that puts on the economy is a lot harder to measure.
1: Yeah, we're talking to Travis Nix, Young Voices contributor. Uh, He's at Georgetown Law now. He likes to write and opine on taxes. We're talking taxes today. Um, Let's have a grown folk talk real quick, though. Uh, Both the last president, President Trump, the current president, Joe Biden. We have spent gobs of money, trillions and trillions of dollars in money. I understand there was emergencies for COVID and other things. Uh, The traditional uh, bylines for the right in America is cut taxes, but with this much spending and this much cost, there's just no way taxes aren't going to go up in the near future at some point because this is just an untenable position, isn't it?
0: Yeah, basically, as we have, what now is $25 trillion in debt in the economy, unless we get spending under control, taxes are going to go up possibly, and most likely. And that's going to have real-world effects on a lot of people. But as soon as you start raising taxes on corporations, they hire less, they cut salaries and that's going to hurt a lot of people. So I think it's very important that we get spending under control in Washington so we can continue to cut taxes, continue to grow the economy, and stimulate the economy. So if you don't take care of that spending side, we're going to start to look a lot closer to Europe and how much they pay in taxes.
1: So, again, like we were talking about with the tax disconnect, though. There's no public appetite for it. We'll send a tweet or a Facebook post about it every now and then. We'll complain about it on talk radio a little bit about it, but nobody seems to care enough about it to actually make it a political thing where there's any pressure whatsoever on Congress or our other elected officials to actually do anything about things like spending, uh, like accountability, like financial pressure, like the debt. Uh, again, I'll just pose it to you like I did the tax question. Why is that? That's a that's a disconnect where we complain about it. So we know there's a problem, but there's no action being taken on any of it.
0: Because people really love their government benefits. You look at what's driving uh, our budget crisis. It's not um, defense spending and discretionary spending that Congress actually has to pull. It's entitlement spending. That's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid um, those are people, seniors, they have a lot of voting power. They love their government benefits. And so people want to keep their benefits. So that's why you have the disconnect is they, it's a contradictory position because they love all these government programs, but then they also want to cut taxes. You can't do that. And that's how you have the budget um, situation that we have now. That's how we got here. People need to realize that um, we need entitlement reform in this country. We need these programs. If they're going to stick around, they need to be narrowly targeted at the poorest Americans and help them. There's no reason a person making three, who earned a three hundred thousand dollar salary for his entire career, should be collecting social security checks. We need to reform these programs so we can continue to get our budget under control. And so we can make these economically productive
1: uh, tax cuts. We talk about things like Social Security, like you just brought up, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, things like Medicare, Medicaid expansion are very popular. So it goes again, again, another one of those disconnect things you talk about. How much does our tax code and our tax regulation and frankly, the the Byzantine poor way that we administer taxes in this country play into that problem, though, because we, we talk about spending, that's just a big generic term. We have a lot that we just lose in the way that we actually try to get taxes, the way we try to administer taxes. How much does the tax code play into a problem where people are like, we should be able to take care of seniors and people that can't work. We all agree on that. How much does having a bad tax code and bad tax policy actually affect that fiscally though?
0: Oh, it does significantly. I think one of the biggest problems in the U.S. tax code is our tax base. So that's actually income that we tax. We have a lot of itemized deductions that higher income earners take that are not well targeted, and they don't really do much for the economy. For example, the charity tax deduction. If you look at the numbers. A lot of people, a lot of Americans, don't get the tar- charity tax deduction, but they donate to charity anyway because we're good people. We have a good country. And so, what is the charity tax deduction do? It subsidizes charitable giving for the highest earning income Americans. So that's a whole chunk of tax money that we could have that we don't. And then what what can we use that tax revenue for? Pay down the deficit or cut taxes broadly for the entire population. And then there's other deductions like being able to write off a mortgage, the state and local tax deduction, which is essentially a blue state tax subsidy. So a lot of Democrat states, they have really high state taxes. And what does the tax code allow them to do? Write some of that off. And I think that's spending, essentially, because that's tax revenue that you are
1: collecting. Yeah, Travis, Nick's joining us, uh, talking a little tax and economics. Uh, Another one of those hidden things that affects taxes greatly. uh, We are looking at the situation now where this also affects all those entitlements you were just talking about. Uh, A lot of people are expecting the Fed to raise tax, uh, to raise interest rates this year. Some reports say they might do it as many as three times this year. When you're talking taxes, when you're talking entitlements, when you're talking kind of that hardwired spending stuff into the federal government that we're discussing here, those little minor changes have great and rippling effects all throughout both the economy, but also culturally and politically, don't they?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think your biggest problem with interest rates, um, that's going to increase the interest that we pay on our debt. So that gives the government less money overall to spend. So that could... I don't think this is going to happen. It could maybe put pressure on politicians to do some entitlement reform. I don't expect that. So we're either going to have discretionary budget uh, cuts and our discretionary spending, which there's not a lot right out there to cut because the money's on the entitlement side. They could raise taxes. That's what the Democrats have been signaling ever since they got full control of the government. Or um, we could see more deficit spending, our deficits continue to rise, and we're on a fast track towards a possible budget crisis in the future.
1: Yeah, Travis, Nick's joining us. Uh, It looks like, before we get back into tax policy, though, uh, President Biden in his most recent press conference announced that he's going to do what everybody said was going to have to happen in the first place. They're going to break up the Build Back Better. You already referenced it earlier. Was there anything in I know there's a lot of bad in there, but you know, it's not all was there anything in that build back better if they go to split it up and they start parsing it out? Was there anything in there you'd like to see specifically addressed by this Congress? Because it is an election year, so there will be some pressure on them to get something done between now and November. Was there anything in there that taking out of the bigger mess that you think should be addressed?
0: Yeah, I think the best provision in there, it's what I've written about recently. It was the full deduction for businesses when they make research and development uh, spending. So for the last, essentially, years and decades in the US, companies been able to fully write off in the first year all of their research costs, which really stimulates inno- innovation. But this year, that or uh, in the last year, that expired. So now companies, if they make $100,000 in research costs in 2022, they have to write that full cost off over five years instead of in the first year. And that was a provision in the Build Back Better program to reinstate the full write-off. That's a provision I actually like and support because it stimulates research, stimulates innovation, and it does produce jobs and grow the economy.
1: Yeah, we're talking to Travis Nix. We're going to dig more into that research and development uh piece of the legislation he's written about that in national review along with another tax that he would say should get bipartisan support we're going to ask him about that more with travis nix of young voices right after this <music> Ah, I heard tell show we're back With Travis Nix, Young Voices contributor, has been writing all over the place. You wrote uh, in National Review, you just mentioned it, uh, you had two tax proposals uh, that you think are really good ideas, and you also think should be bipartisan ideas. You just mentioned one of them, but I want to dig into a little bit more. Uh, Work off the nomenclature, though, R&D, research and development. You mentioned it. You said this is why it's good. But why is that so important for companies, especially innovative companies where uh, things like tech and manufacturing, where their innovation is running ahead of the regulation. Sometimes it's running ahead of regulatory and tax things. Why is it so important to get that R&D research and development uh, block money up front for these companies?
0: Because it makes it cheaper to invest in research and development. And I think we've seen throughout you know, last few decades um, how much the U.S. economy has innovated and changed and how much that's helped people. Wages are rising. we that's created numerous new jobs, and numerous new companies. And I think it's really good that we need to make it cheaper for these companies to research and come up with these new ideas that improve everybody's standard of living.
1: Also, and you mentioned it in the piece, uh, when these companies that are doing this innovation, those are often the companies that are kind of on the leading edge of things like new hires or new training of new workers and things like that. So this actually has a bit of a blast radius that goes beyond just research and development.
0: Oh, oh yeah, definitely. These are the companies, it's the research and development is one of the fastest growing sectors of the U.S. economy. A lot of new people, when they're getting hired straight out of college or changing careers, are getting hired in this sector. And when companies research, really good products that make a lot of money, then they can either expand their businesses and hire new people or um, people can invest in these companies and then have some more money for themselves.
1: Yeah. uh, Talking to Travis Nix. Now you said something that would normally in a vacuum be a little controversial about this particular tax proposal. Uh, It has long been dogma on the right and in (coughs) conservative and libertarian economic circles that retroactive tax is bad. Like, you know, the power of Christ compels you to get away from us bad. However, you think in this specific case, retroactively enacting this tax would be a good thing. Try to explain that to us.
0: Yeah, so normally retroactive uh, tax cuts are bad because they just subsidize existing behavior and don't encourage new behavior, which is 100% true proof if we were to retroactively um, go back to a full deduction for research costs. For in 2022. So companies have already made research in January, research costs to uh, a full write-off would subsidize what they did in January and not stimulate new activity. But I think it's very important for these companies that we cut their costs so they're conti- that they continue to be able to make these economically productive research investments. Because if you don't do it retroactively, everything that they've done in January and February, whenever this gets extended, finally, that's going to come with a lot higher cost. And that's going to impact their research abilities years down the line, potentially.
1: All right. You have another proposal in your piece at uh, National Review. We encourage you to go find it. Uh, Congress's Urgent Tax Needs for 2022. You can read it for yourself. Please do. Do your own homework, like we always say on this program. Uh, Full capital investment deduction. That's a nice, big, fat word. Uh, Explain it to me like I'm five. What are we talking about?
0: Yeah. So this provision is known as full expensing. And what it allows is companies to fully deduct the cost of their capital investments immediately off their income taxes. So these are investments in like machinery, new equipment for employees and stuff like that. It's basically every uh, investment you can think of other than purchasing a building uh, essentially. So the reason that this uh, tax proposal is really, really important, it was included in uh, the 2017 tax bill, but it expires at the end of this year. And so we really like this proposal because it encourages companies to invest in their employees, essentially. They're investing in equipment machines, everything that makes employees more productive. And as we've seen throughout U.S. history, when employees are more productive, their wages go up, one, because they're producing more, that makes them a more valuable employee. And it also empowers them to go up to their boss and ask for wage increases and all these Economically productive investments also increase uh, new jobs. And there are studies out there that this provision could essentially increase GDP by like 4% over the long run.
1: Yeah, let's make that real real quick, though, because you said it's in history. People may not understand. Uh, Let's take like the steel industry, for example. The steel industry in America got decimated in the 70s. Because they were still running 40s and 50s equipment in their steel mills, places like Youngstown, places like Pittsburgh, places like Allentown. I know my family was in Youngstown, you know, uh, Black Monday, you know, uh, Youngstown uh, tube and steel. They just shut it down because they were running 40s and 50s equipment and never got upgraded. We don't even have the ability to do tooling in America now because we didn't upgrade that sector. So dig into that a little bit more because I don't think people realize maybe how vital to especially like manufacturing, especially now that we're talking about tech, we're seeing this now in the ability to make microchips and things like this, how important being able to invest in your own business in machinery and things like that is to industry wise and the greater economy.
0: Yeah, and especially in America, it's it's very important because we have huge economic competitors out there in China and in other countries where if we don't allow our employees to have the best equipment, best machines, best stuff, and they're not producing enough, what are companies going to do? They're going to go and offshore these jobs to these other countries that can produce things a lot faster and a lot better than they can in america so we need to make it as cheap as possible in america for companies to build all this new equipment for employees that they're able to use very productively which will help them keep their jobs and help them keep their paychecks
1: yeah i'm talking to travis next okay on the ledger side of business and economy if this expires at the end of the year the fiscal year what would the actual practical effect be? Is it lost jobs? Is it lost innovation? And and the thing about this is when we're talking about innovation and machinery, this is things that are projected costs for these companies. These are things they plan out, you know, three, five, 10 years ahead of time. What's the practical effect if this lapses?
0: If this lapses, uh, companies are just going to invest less, which is going to have, it's not going to affect people's jobs right away. It's not going to affect their wages right away. What it's going to do is if we, extrapolate it over time over like a next 10 year period. And where we don't have a full capital investment deduction, their wages that they earn, is going to be less than what they would have earned without, um, this provision. And there's going to be fewer jobs in the economy. The economy is going to be less productive and it's going to produce a lot less than it would have if we had a full capital expense deduction.
1: Talking to Travis Nix, um, you end your piece, um, uh- With a call for bipartisanship, we 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 understand that it's pretty ugly right now. Again, it's it's an election year, so you know there's not going to be a lot of hand holding kumbaya kind of stuff out of Congress. However, you bring up the fact that there is some of this legislation, especially now that we know that they're going to break up BBB and work at it that way. Um, you say there's room for some bipartisanship. They could work on the R&D deduction that we're talking about. They could work on the capital investment that we're talking about. And they could maybe pair that with other popular legislation like the child tax credit, maybe package some of this stuff together. Do you see a bipartisan path forward here, even with a divided Congress in an election year?
0: I think I do, because I think both sides are going to want to try and get something done. And taxes are just naturally less controversial, less heated than some of these bigger culture war issues. The R&D deduction that's had a lot of bipartisan support in the past, that's always been a bipartisan provision, full expensing less so, that's more something Republicans like. But then we look at what Democrats, what do they wanna do? They wanna increase the child tax credit. And I think this is a great opportunity for both sides to come together because what can we view the child tax credit as? You're investing in children, you're investing in human capital, and then you get the full expensing side of it, that you're investing in physical capital, physical assets that help make workers more productive. So I think it's a beautiful opportunity for both sides to come together and say, we're, yes, we want to invest in our future in human capital and also physical capital that helps uh, workers out.
1: Yeah, Travis, next. Nice. Thanks. Is it one of those things where we use, we get caught up in the buzzwords and the terminology and tax policy is is the wonkiest of wonky things to talk about because it's, it's very, it's got a lot of that math stuff I don't like to do and things like that. But like you just laid out, I mean, you used all the policy terms, but what you're really talking about is we're going to increase productivity, which will increase people's wages, which will, and then we're going to decrease their cost of living. I'm not a big economics maven, but that's a that's a sellable point to just about anybody, regardless of their knowledge level is like you're going to make more money and it's going to cost you less money in taxes to take care of your family. That seems to me like a winning message, regardless of what your ideology politically is.
0: Yeah, it's a winning message for any political party, which is why I'm somewhat hopeful and somewhat optimistic that we can find a bipartisan way forward. And bipartisanship is so important in tax policy, more so than any other policy, because we need a stable tax code. When the tax code changes every year, every two years, every five years, that makes it very difficult for families to plan for their future, it makes it different for businesses to plan for their future and what they're going to invest in, and who they're going to hire. So it's really important that we have a stable tax code, and that's the direction this country needs to go in.
1: Travis Nix, outstanding stuff. Uh, A little bit of a deep dive into taxes and stuff, but we need to do that. Uh, Again, like we started with, it's not really getting talked about as much as other issues, but maybe we should get back to that. Uh, Let folks know where they can find you. You're writing all over the place. Uh, Of course, your Twitter feed, things like that, your social media. Let folks know how they can find and follow you, my friend.
0: Yeah, the easiest way to connect with me is on Twitter, at TNix113. You can also find me and all my articles on the Young Voices homepage under my name, Travis Nix.
1: Fantastic. And he is one of them bilingual people. He can even do this for us in Spanish, but we won't put him on the spot today for that. Uh, Travis Nix, great job, buddy. Appreciate the insight. Looking forward to talking to you again in the future. Maybe uh, later on as they start busting up this uh, Build Back Better bill, we'll talk and get some updates on this.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: I appreciate your time, sir. Ah, Welcome back to Hertel. You know what? We always try to end on a good note or a happy note. Uh, I love this story. You know we're big food people here on Hertel. We enjoy food. We enjoy food that brings people together. It's one of the reasons in the, the program. We always say we not only hope you're well, we hope you're well-fed because those things go together. This is a great story uh, at a UATravel, uh, ArkansasTraveler.com, uh, UATravel.com. Uh, amid the sounds of worship music and sizzle from a hot grill, Echoes of laughter and lively voices fill the air. Orange twinkling lights illuminate groups of people enjoying warm meals at long, white picnic tables. Volunteers prepare and hand out food underneath a sign that reads, Feed people, love people. While Jennifer Cristoforo wanders through the sea of friendly faces, Cristoforo and her friends Melinda Williams and Meredith Chalupas uh, open their food trucks for the love. That's the name of the food truck. Uh, November of 2020, while running together five times a week, the girls discuss between deep breaths and pounding footfalls, How many people were struggling with a lost sense of community and financial hardships during the pandemic? That's when they settled on opening a food truck, something that naturally cultivates community and gathers people while operating as a source of sustenance. Cristofaro said the friends purchased the food truck, previously Tandem Tacos, on Facebook Marketplace after raising money through a social media campaign. The truck is open for lunch Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, and the menu Can includes a variety of food truck staples like sandwiches and salads. Here's the kicker. It uses a pay-what-you-can model, which includes three options for customer, pay a minimum cost of $350, pay the suggested price, or use a free meal token, which people can buy at the truck and give out to other people that are in line. Thursdays at the truck, neighborhood nights, during which anyone in the community can gather at 501 Southwest A Street in Bentonville, Arkansas, famously home of Walmart. For 5.30 to 6.30 for a free meal, the owners want people to come out to the neighborhood nights, whether or not they are physically hungry because they think everyone is hungry for something. This could be a sense of community, a friend, or a chance to feel and seen heard. Chris says, we feed people and we love people, and that's really what we want to do. We can't really fix anything or solve anything, but we can give you a hot meal and a warm hug and listen to you. The meals served neighborhood nights vary from week to week. Past meals include burgers, tacos, and a Thanksgiving meal. Cool story. Uh, there's pictures here. They took an old food truck. Uh, they just set out picnic tables, started serving people food. They do do it for a profit. But that's a cool thing where you can buy a token, give it out to somebody else, and pay it forward that way. Uh, we have often said food is a good way to bring people together. So love covering stories like that. So that's going to do it for her Tell. Uh, it's Friday, it's the end of the week. So we will be back on Monday. But if you're subscribed on, YouTube or on any of the podcasting platforms. There's plenty of tell to go back through in case you missed anything. Remember, we have two different options now. On the YouTube platform, we have the Good Talks playlist. That's just the interview portions of the show, and we have started to add those to the podcasting platforms at all. So when you're scrolling through the podcast service, whichever one you're using, iTunes, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, we're on all the major ones and some that I didn't even know existed until we got put on them. Uh, Look for anything marked good talks those will be the interview portions uh, and then the full shows of herd tell as well and we appreciate you giving us the most precious thing you have your time we will always respect it and try to give you something worthwhile so in the meantime wherever you are across the street or around the world we hope you're well hope you're well fed we'll talk to you tomorrow on herd tell All the music on tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. So, so,